Let's get in a word tonight. Meet me in the book of Deuteronomy, Old Testament. Uh-oh. And a lot of churches, if you go in and you open in the Old Testament, you get ready for a psychological, spiritual beatdown. Right? Let me show you a beatdown. Well, you know better. We're not going to do that to you. I don't believe in beatdowns. I believe in lifting up. I believe the grace of God. I don't, I don't believe you're... You need to spend one moment being beaten down, particularly by the Word. We're going to do something tonight that allows us to sort of put into action some of the things we've been talking about in regards to sprinkling Jesus into the story. I think that's vital. If you can put those lenses, they put that set of lenses on when you read the Old Testament, you'll find life in passages that maybe you didn't see life before. We're going to take our cue from how to do that from a great New Testament writer. But also tonight, I want to just give you two little words to kind of lay us out. Lay, lay out a path in front of us, and those two words are choose life, because I truly believe you have a choice. You have a choice with how you live your life. You have a choice with what you do with your life. You have a choice in what you will do with the Jesus you're hearing about this weekend, and you can go out and do something with that Jesus or ignore that. That's your choice. That's, there's no force upon you for what you do, but every one of us face the choice of what we will do with God. And this sounds like the kind of thing you would say at the beginning of an evangelistic sermon, is to say, all of you sinners in here, I'm going to give you a choice tonight. You can live for God or you can live for the devil. You can go to heaven or you can go to hell. Try to lay out some dichotomy of the gospel where good's on one side and bad's on the other. Um, and there's utility in that, that's for sure, because there's lefts and there's rights and there's choices to be made. But this isn't just about... This isn't about evangelism, about uh, leading you into salvation versus the life you have, because I, I know that probably everybody in this house is evangelized. Most of what I do is evangelize the evangelized. I don't jump, come in and try to get you saved. Most of you have already met Christ. You've already had an experience with the Lord. So why say to a room full of saved people, are you ready to choose life? I'll tell you why. Because I've been in the church my entire life and some of the most miserable and dead people I've ever met have prayed the sinner's prayer. And I don't mean they're just cranky, though there's a bunch of that. And I don't mean they're just jerks, because God knows there's a bunch of that. But I mean they have no life in their life. They have no true joy and no true peace and no true satisfaction in God. And here we are up here quoting, come to Jesus, you can have life and you can have more abundant. You think if this is life more abundant, I'll sign up for anything else. I'll try something else if that's life more abundant. And so I truly believe that the church needs to hear the message of life. Because even though we've prayed the sinner's prayer and we've been baptized and we observe the observances, I don't know that we're walking out the life of God. And I think that's tragic. I think that's awful. Because this life, when you meet Him and you know Him and you fall in love with Him and you know you're loved by Him, is truly the greatest life that you can lead. The greatest life that you can live and why that's what we want to get to the bottom of tonight what would it look like to choose life and i hope that you'll listen enough that even though you've accepted christ as your savior and you know your and i'm going to use some christian cliches you know your name is written in the lamb's book of life and you have a home over in the glory land and all of the things and you're you're prepared to cross that cosmic jordan all of that good stuff I hope you'll still listen just in case there's a life to be had that you're not let yet living. A life to be had that you could reach out and grab, that you could make your own if you would. 
Because to me, that's what that kind of transformation looks like. A life to be lived. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's start in verse 11. I want to read a few verses to start with. And then we're going to take our cue from how the New Testament treats the Old Testament. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. In other words, it's not something you can't understand. So pay attention. Right? This isn't over your head, God says. It's not too mysterious for you. And it's not far off. And by far off, don't think calendars and clocks. Think proximity by faith. Okay. Because for God, there's no calendars and clocks. I mean, he knows we have one. But heaven doesn't seem bound by calendars and clocks. Aren't you glad? That's how Jesus could die 2,000 years ago and your future sins are covered. Because he don't have a calendar and a clock. He just steps in and does his work in the realm of the eternal. It's not too mysterious. It's not far off, so get ready. In fact, it's so close, Jesus said, repent, the kingdom's at hand. Change your mind, you could have it. It's just that close. Just change your mind, you could have it. So whatever comes next, we can handle, but we have to handle it through the proper lens. 12. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. We'll get into the choosing in a moment, but I want, I want to show you this little moment nestled into the end of Torah. We are nearing the end of the fifth book of the Hebrew Bible, the final book, five books of Torah that make up that Old Testament canon in which God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and he begins to relate, relay those things into a book. We call it the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch, but it's that final moment in Torah. And Torah is full of instruction and full of Sinaiic law. God says, do this and you'll be blessed and do that and you'll be cursed. And out of that, we derive a system of if I do good, I'll get good. And if I do bad, I'll get bad. And, and if I, I can be blessed by God if I perform properly and be cursed if I, if I misperform. But that's not us because we're Christian. And, and we have this in the Christian Bible but we don't place our faith in the Sinaiic Code because we aren't followers of Moses and we're not followers of the Ten Commandments for righteousness. We're followers of Jesus, the Christ, the one who comes and fulfills all of the law so that we can put everything wrong with us into everything that's right with Him and vice versa and we can receive of His goodness grace upon grace. Amen. Right? And so we don't go into this Old Testament to try to derive life. So what we have to do with it is take Jesus, the Jesus we know that has saved us, and sprinkle him into that text. So here's an example. When Paul gets deep into his letter to the Romans, it's a 16-chapter book, most of it actually deals with the dichotomy between Jew and Gentile and the union between Jew and Gentile through faith in Christ. Most of Romans, although for most grace people, Romans is a book about righteousness. Romans is a book about grace. Romans is a book about justification. And it is, but it's actually just a little slice. It's about chapter 5 through most of chapter 8. That is, and, and granted, 
It's the four greatest chapters probably in the New Testament on grace and righteousness and justification. But it's not the point of the book. The point of the book is for Paul to speak to his Jewish friends about the Jesus that he has met in hopes that his Jewish friends will turn to that Christ and realize that it's the same Christ that will save his Roman friends and his barbarian friends, and that there's really no difference anymore in what makes someone a Jew and what makes someone a Gentile. And Paul even doubles down in the letter and goes, actually, now, the only thing that really makes you a Jew is if you're circumcised in your heart. It has nothing to do with who your dad was or where you live or your bloodline or any of that. And that's the kind of thing, by the way, that gets Paul killed. Because he's really allowing Jesus to break down all those barriers. So you get to Romans chapter 10, and Paul goes, I would be cursed if possible. So that all of my brethren, my Jewish brethren, would be saved. And he said, because my Jewish brethren are going about trying to achieve righteousness, being ignorant of the righteousness that is of faith, going about to achieve their own righteousness by performance, by works, not trusting that Christ, in Romans chapter 10 he goes, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He said, for as it is written... Any man who lives in them, who, any man who does them must live in them. Paul grabs a random verse from the book of Leviticus, squeezes it into Romans. Anyone that lives by the law or that obeys the law must live by the law. And then he says, it's also written, who shall go up into heaven to bring him down? Deuteronomy 30. Who shall go into the abyss to bring him up? Deuteronomy 30. And Paul puts parentheses, he brackets, it's Pauline commentary in the middle of the text in Romans 10. He goes, who shall go up to bring him down? Parentheses, as if we could go up to heaven and bring Christ down from the heavens. Who shall go down into the abyss to bring him up? Parentheses, as if we could go down into the darkness to bring up Jesus. And he said, the word is very near you in your mouth that you may do it. Parentheses, the word which we preach, which is the word of faith. And then Paul makes this famous statement. And that word is this, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Now, we all know that one. That's Romans 10, 9, and 10. But what we forget is that Paul actually sprinkles Jesus into the end of the Torah to get us there. He goes back into a text from Deuteronomy 30 in which God says, this isn't too mysterious. If you really know, want to know what my heart looks like, if you really want to know what life looks like, it's all about what comes out of your mouth that has first penetrated your heart. So don't think that life is something you can go achieve by living or life is something you achieve by doing, but rather life is something that starts by believing. It's Paul who takes Deuteronomy 30 and reimagines it into Romans chapter 10. What he's really done is he sat down with his Torah and he preached Jesus into it. We get it in parenthetical passages in Romans chapter 10. It's Paul squeezing Jesus into the text going, you know, the reason it's not mysterious is because we've met Christ. And if we meet Christ, we realize that it's not about ascending up into heaven to bring Christ down. It's not about going down into the deep to bring Christ up because Christ isn't hiding in the heavens. And Christ isn't hiding in the deep. Christ is one confession away. That's, Paul's, that's what Paul calls righteousness by faith. He goes, it's not that I've got to jump higher to find him or that I've got to go lower to find him. 
It's that I must just simply believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That if I sought him out, boom, he's right there. So I present this to you as a way of introducing to you that life is not far away. Life is not something you have to spend money on to have or to go off into the distance to pull down or go down into the darkness to bring up. But life begins in this man, Christ Jesus, and simply begins by faith in who he is. So back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, then I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, that you cling to Him for, look at this phrase, He is your life and the length of your days. He is your life and the length of your days. Okay. Those are two different things. It doesn't sound like it, but it is. He is your life, but He's also your length of days. Your length of days sounds like your life, but not to God. Because your life has nothing to do with your length of days in God's economy. The life of God has nothing to do with how long you live on this earth. Because what we have done is we have transformed the idea of everlasting and eternal and we've made it something you can quantify by, by time. I told you a moment ago, God doesn't live on your calendar or your clock. So we take things like John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gives His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we go, what that means is you get to live forever. But that's not what that means. Because that's what we've done to everlasting and that's what we've done to eternal. The reality is, is that everlasting and eternal, as far as God is concerned, has little to do with clocks because he didn't have one when he started. He didn't have a clock. When did God create the sun? What day? Four. What in the world's going on those first three days? Because on our clock, a day, you're going to need a sun. It was just God's way of showing you, you don't understand the creative power of what I am what you clock on a fourth day, I've been clocking forever. Okay, you don't know how to clock it till the fourth day, but my version and your version are two entirely different things. And so when Jesus comes, he introduces us to the life of God, which is everlasting life, eternal life. It has nothing to do with forever. It has everything to do not with quantity, but quality. So when Deuteronomy 30, God tips his hand and says, I am both your life and your length of days. I'm life in your dimension, and I'm life in my dimension. I'm going to be there as long as your days last, and I'm going to be there when your days are done. Because the life that I afford is not just the ability to live long, because that's not actually the life we've been afforded in God. It's not a promise that we're going to live long. What we're promised is that we're going to live His life beginning now. And even when we die, we shall live. One of the great paradoxes of the Gospels is Jesus at Bethany. Four days after Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up late. I hear people always say to me, God's, God's, God's never early, God's never late, God's right on time. And I say, tell that to Mary and Martha at Bethany. 
Because that was their first argument to Jesus. He goes, you know, you could have got here sooner. I mean, our brother's dead now. And being late was exactly what God wanted to do because he was just simply late on their clock. Right? He might, it might look like he's late on your clock, but he's not just running on your clock. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus shows up at Bethany, and on their clock, he's late. But Jesus says to Martha, he says, do you believe that your brother shall live again? What a question. And Martha goes, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think he's going to live again someday in the resurrection. That's a good answer. I mean, we kind of cut her down, but it's a pretty quality answer because half of Israel wouldn't have answered that way. Because by the time of Jesus, I'm in the weeds a little bit here, but stay with me. By the time of Jesus, Israel's not unified on whether or not there's a resurrection. The Pharisees think there is, the Sadducees think there's not. And the populace is split probably down the middle. And you want to know why? Because the Old Testament don't talk a lot about it. Heaven, hell, resurrection is not the theme of the Old Covenant. It's not the theme of the Old Testament. And so Israel's pretty much split. So Jesus goes, what do you think? You think your brother's going to live? She goes, yeah, I do. I think he's going to live again in the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection, which had to just blow her mind because what's that mean? Resurrection's when dead bodies come out of the ground. You say you're the resurrection. And then Jesus says this, if a man believe in me, he shall believe and never die. Well, praise God. And if a man believe in me and die, he shall live again. I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus spoke out of this side of his mouth and then that side of his mouth in the same paragraph. Listen again. If a man believe in me, he shall never die. And if that man dies or believes in me, he shall die and live again. Which one is it? Correct answer, both. If a man believes in Jesus, he chooses the life of God, he never dies to the life of God. If a man dies in this body, he lives again in the life of God. Both things true at exactly the same time. Because Jesus is playing on two different planes at the same time. The level of the natural and the level of the supernatural. So choosing life, so I say all of this because I, I don't want us to be guilty. We're better than this. All right? We're better than this. We're better than being guilty of every time that we see something and it's got Old Testament in front of it, we just radically discount it because it's not under the New Covenant. And to do that is to radically discount the texts that Jesus came to live out. Okay. He's not asking you to live the Old Covenant for any kind of eternal life. And I know this because when Paul wants to tell you what it means to be saved, I would to God that I could be a curse so that my brethren in Christ could be saved, my brethren in Israel could be saved. He doesn't then tell you to live the law. He goes into the law and puts Jesus in it. And he says so that even when we read the law, what we go looking for is Christ and how Christ fulfills that. So that when we go find life, we don't go find it by doing things, we go find it by finding Jesus. And in finding Jesus, we find life so don't dismiss this as old covenant we're better than that instead put jesus into the middle of it and realize that it's not about how high i jump it's not about how low i reach it's about the confession that i have in christ remember this from john 1 4 in christ was life the words actually in him in him was life and the life was the light of all men or of all people in christ was life and the life that he lived remains the light to all men 
So to show the life of Christ is to show the life of God. I believe that Jesus came on a rescue mission to rescue mankind. Let me challenge a school of thought for just a moment and not to be obnoxious, but simply because I think we've went a little out of balance. Okay? And sometimes when things get out of balance, you've got to pull them back towards the center. You and I belong to largely the Western church world. I don't just mean geographically. When you study church history, you, you kind of break the church body down into the Western church and the Eastern church. And when we do that, we kind of think Western hemisphere, Eastern hemisphere. Scratch geography, okay? Scratch calendars and geography. And instead, just sort of recognize that, that what I'm talking about is, is there's a body of church thought in the Western church world, predominantly Roman Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical. You're part of that. Well, I'm not Catholic. Well, you're part of the Western church mindset. Same business. All right? And nothing gets more offensive to evangelicals than the idea that they share anything in common with Catholics, which I think is bizarre, seeing as we all believe in resurrected Christ. Uh, the Eastern church world is largely Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so their liturgy is different. Their Jesus is the same. But his mission is entirely different. This is what's fascinating to me. In the Western church world, we have Jesus the lawyer. Because in the Western church world, we see sin as a guilt problem. That everybody's guilty and needs to be redeemed. And so for the Western church mindset, what Jesus came to do was to intermediate or mediate between a guilty body, humanity, and an offended judge. And so Jesus then mediates between the guilty body and the offended judge and never stops. The Western church has Jesus constantly mediating on behalf of guilty man. And how we present the gospel in the Western church world is to say, come to Jesus, you are guilty. Jesus is your way out of guilt. And if you'll come to Jesus, he can wash away your guilt. You'll be declared just if we love words like justification, sanctification, redemption. You will stand before a pure God, a pure judge, and you'll be made whiter than snow because of Jesus, and he will ever live to be your intercessor. He'll be your attorney. And that's become predominantly the message of the Western church. The Eastern church does not see sin as a guilt issue. They see sin as a disease. A disease that is prevalent among the world. And therefore, Jesus is not so much an attorney as he is a doctor. And what Jesus comes to do, according to the gospel of the Eastern Church, is that Jesus comes to heal broken humanity. To pour of himself into the wounds of man, the oil and the wine of the Spirit, to bind up the brokenhearted. Did you notice that both sides use Bible? They're both using scriptures to describe him. I think we could maybe borrow from our Eastern church brethren. I, I think it'd be a good idea to leave the matlock Jesus in the closet for a little while. Just, just a little while. We can bring him back out. Good show. Just, just put matlock away for a little while. And instead, bring out Dr. Jesus. Just a little bit. Just reincorporate Dr. Jesus, because if we brought Dr. Jesus back into the gospel, 
It's hard to have compassion on the guilty guy. It's hard not to have compassion on the wounded guy. If he's got cancer, if he's got a tumor, if he's been shot, we'll drop our stuff and we'll help him out. And we don't ask him how he got cancer or whether he brought the tumor on himself. We just give because we hurt, because we bleed, because we want him to be healed. Too much of the Matlock Jesus has us wishing guilty people would get what comes to them. That's the Western church mindset. It's also retributive justice. We talked about that a little bit last night. We're so into it. We love John Wayne Jesus and Rambo Jesus. Because John Wayne Jesus and Rambo Jesus, they always beat people up at the end of the movie. Bad stuff happens, bad stuff happens, bad stuff happens. You're getting it, man. It's gonna get, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. You just don't know you're pushing it. You, just, you don't push John Rambo like this. It's a big mistake. Right? Okay. And then retributive justice, boom. Here comes a 50 caliber and you know, bullets across the chest and everyone's going to die. But if we had Dr. Jesus, and, and here's the amazing thing. Jesus never says the guilty need an attorney. But he does say, the sick need a physician. Now, why is that? Because I kind of think that from the viewpoint of God, he sees us less guilty and more sick. And the rescue mission of heaven is to come and find sick humanity and bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor recovering of sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the crushed. He never said he hath sent me to advocate for the guilty. He hath sent me to pay back what has been wronged. No, he always looked at it in medical terms. That's why when he walked into a room and people were spiritually guilty of sin, he never let it stop him from healing the physical body. Because for him, sin was a condition that was much likened unto the sickness of our bodies. In fact, Jesus would say to someone, go your way, your sins are forgiven you. And he'd go, go your way and sin no more, lest a worse thing befall you. He, said, he wasn't saying, go your way and sin no more, lest you be guilty. He went, go your way and sin no more, lest this sickness come back. He said, because sickness, the sin is a sickness that's robbing you of life and robbing you of joy. And if you want to be robbed of joy, go sin again. And if you want chaos in your wake in hell, go sin again. And I, I say it to you. Don't go out here and avoid sin because you're afraid you'd be guilty. Christ hath redeemed you from the curse of the law. Christ is the answer for your guilt. I don't think we even have to continue to proclaim the message that you are guilty. Not if God is not counting your transgressions against you and Christ was made to be sin so that you could be made righteous. So stop worrying about being guilty. But you're sick. That's our issue. We do have some sicknesses. And the reason why we keep coming back to Jesus after we're saved is because we keep recognizing our sicknesses. Now, we've called them guilt, and I think we need to drop that baggage. 
We wouldn't say a guy's guilty if he's sick. We'd say he's sick. And you know what's happening? We're dealing with lost people in the world, and we're dealing with sickness. Dealing with the sickness of sin. And it's horrible. And it wrecks lives. And it kills and it destroys. And it's awful. And I hate to watch people's lives be ruined by sin. Especially when I know what Jesus has done. Don't you? When I know what Jesus has done and what he could do, I think, why would we let him wreck? Why would we let our lives be wrecked by sin? So, so my gospel message is morphed. So I no longer try to round up the guilty party. Get them to the end of the service and corral them with guilt, shame, and condemnation so they can realize that Jesus has come to pay it all and be their mediator. Instead, I believe part of my role is to bind up the brokenhearted and try to pour in the oil a little bit and try to help wherever there's a wound. And it sounds a little bit like what Jesus told us to do in the Good Samaritan story. You find the dude's been beat up on the side of the road. You put all the, take all the money out of your purse and stick him in the hotel. And on the way there, you bind up his wounds and you tell the guy at the front desk, if he owes you anything when he's done, I'll come pay that too. Because I'm really here just to make sure this guy's okay. Yeah, but you don't know why he was out there getting beat up. He probably deserved every punch. You know what? He probably did. I mean, of course he did. I mean, who doesn't deserve a good punching once in a while? <laughs> right? He probably deserved a bunch of good punches. And he might have got them. I don't know that he didn't get beat up because he had been, you know, throwing rocks at the people passing by on the road. Jesus doesn't tell us that. We just know that he's beat up. The concern doesn't start with what he did to get him there. The concern starts with what we can do to get him out of there. And in getting him out of there, we pour in who Christ is. That's the rescue mission of life. All right, That's the work that is being done. Go to John 14. Let's go to Jesus real quick. I, I, I wanna, there's a couple of landing spots I want to try to get to this evening. You know what's happened in three services here is that nothing has went according to plan. Um, and I'm okay with that. I truly am. I stopped performing in ministry a long time ago. When I first went into ministry, um, you just sort of copycat for years. I was a kid. I was 15 years old when I first preached my first sermon. And I spent the first several years just really trying to figure out how to preach. And, you know, I come from a, from a tradition that thought if you went to Bible college, they'd steal whatever anointing you had. So your best bet was not to go get educated, but just get out there and preach. And so, and so I did a lot of damage <laughs> like for years. I did a lot of damage, no doubt, because I just preached whatever sounded fun. <laughs> Ain't nothing more fun than jumping on people either. Yeah, I mean, you could just, just go at people, just plow away, man. <laughs> but then part of it was like art. You know, like public speaking was an art. How you moved, how you sounded, how you walked. And there's still some of that. I, I'm a big believer in honing your craft. Like, work on it. If you don't say words correctly, work on them. I mean, it's not, it's not like it's honorable to get up and botch the English language. And like, that's a real fun thing to do. So work on it. So I, I do. And I mean, I'm, I try to work on it. And then this is what comes out. But, <laughs> but for a long time, it was all about performance. It was all about doing it. And so it was point, illustration, Poem, song, point, 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 invitation song, step over here on your right foot when you say this, step over here on your left foot when you say this, cry here, 
insert funny story. Now you guys think I'm joking, but that's the art. That's the that's like the homiletics of how to do this. Okay, and don't dare get up here and wing it. Which I will say is pretty good advice. Don't get up and wing it. Like have an idea. That's a pretty good plan. Because winging it can get you in trouble. But what I learned over the years is, and what I've really come into in the last few years, is if you've dug the well deep enough, then in the moment when the, Holy, when the wind blows, you can close it and reach down and get the cold water. But you can't dig the well when you're up here. You know what I mean? You don't get to get up here and then buy time for five minutes and dig the well. It's either there or it's not. And you've been in services where it's not. And they're grabbing. Like they're grabbing for everything and they're just throwing whatever they can find in the basement. And it's no good, right? All right. <laughs> That's enough of that. Look at, six, look at verse 6 of John 14. Everybody in here knows, I think I quoted this I don't know, last night. Maybe this morning. Remember when Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father. And Jesus goes, how long I got to be with you before you know? If you see me, you've seen the Father. What doesn't get read a lot of times is what led Philip to say that. What did Jesus say that caused Philip to say, hey, just show us the Father. I want to read those verses for you. Verse 6 and 7. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I personally believe that verse does not say no one goes to heaven, no one can see God. I, I didn't mean, I'm not trying to say people go to heaven without Jesus. I'm just saying it's not what it says. What it actually says is no man can see the Father except by me. So I, I, I believe... Uh, I've got to be careful here. Well, it's easy for you to say go ahead. I'm the one who got to answer the email. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that kind of came out before I thought about it. <laughs> um, I'm going to temper it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tame it down and say this. I don't think that God has put limits on how he shows himself to people across time, cultures, and religions. All right, say it that way. But he will, you will not know he's your father without Jesus. How's that? That landed pretty softly there, didn't I? You might see God. I, I think you can see God through a lot of things. I think Paul's got my back on this. Romans 1, he said, you've seen the Creator through His creation. You can tell there's a God by looking at a waterfall, by studying the cosmos. If you're honest, it's bigger than you are. Acknowledging God is acknowledging something you don't understand that's bigger than you. You can find that without Jesus. But you'll not know him as your daddy without knowing the son. Now that blew their minds when he said that. You're not going to know him as father unless you see him through me. Watch seven. If you had known me, you'd have known my father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. So I say this to you. To see Jesus is to see the father. To choose Jesus is to choose the life of God of Deuteronomy 30. Because Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. And Jesus is what God always will look like. We've said that every sermon. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I used to preach 
Confession time. I used to preach. Hebrews 13 says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, but it don't say God is. God used to do this. God used to do that. But Jesus is the same yesterday. I, I had Jesus as an agent calming the angry father down. Always saying, Dad, you're going to have to... We can't get this mad at him. He prayed the prayer. And then God would go, okay. But he was lucky. He didn't pray that prayer. And he was always waiting. You know, like kind of you to, he's waiting for you to slip out of Jesus. We'd go, you better stay in Jesus or you're in trouble. Because it was like God was honing in on us, just watching. And then we'd slide out of Jesus. Ah! Gotcha. And that's, that's, that's our mediator, Jesus. That's, that's too much of always guilty instead of always redeemed. But sick. Because if we could know we were sick, then it wouldn't be God trying to wait to squash you. It would be God having sent His physician to recapture your heart. And so to choose Jesus is to choose the life of God. And so I no longer say, God used to do this, then God did this. No, when it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday today, and forever, it is a standing rule that if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. So if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess who else is the same yesterday, today, and forever? The Father. To choose Jesus is to choose life. The life of God is not a life of requirements. The life of God is the life of participation in covenant. Participation in covenant. 2,000 years of church sacraments, we've been dunking people in water. 2,000 years. We've been taking people and we've been dropping them into water and we've been raising them up. And we've been doing this because Jesus went into death and raised up in a newness of life. And the early church participated in baptism because Jesus himself was baptized. And so therefore, by baptism, we identify ourselves not just as a Christian, but as someone who has died to who we used to be so that we can be alive to who we should be or who we could be or who we are in Christ. And therefore, baptism, water baptism, is participation in the covenant of God. You're baptized into me. You know what else is participation in the covenant of God? Communion. The broken body and the shed blood of Christ. The Eucharist. Eucharist, the Greek word, essentially meaning Thanksgiving. And every time we take the Eucharist, we're saying thank you. Thank you for what? Thank you for the broken body, broken for me. Thank you for the shed blood that seals and inaugurates my new covenant and washes away my sins. Thank you that your body is broken to take care of all of my brokenness because I'm sick and I'm in need of a physician. Thank you for your blood that's been shed so that my blood will not have to be shed because I am sick and I can't afford to lose more blood. And I'm in need of a physician. And your blood flows through me as life. Participation. But I want to say this as a, as a, as a way of bringing this to an end. Grace is free. It doesn't cost you anything to be the righteousness of God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. And God will never give you a bill. He will not give you a bill throughout your Christianity saying, you better do this or I'm going to get your kids. You better do this or I'm going to steal your job. And anytime people lay that in front of you, they're just laying over you some sort of masked, something they're masking with spiritualism that's just legalism all over again. 
So if someone tells you that if you don't do this, God will do this because you didn't pay God off, it's not grace. That is legalism. That is the law. What we said this morning, being told what you ought to do because you want to look like Jesus is not legalism because the ought to is not so that you'll be saved. It's because you are. And because you are on his team, you wear his uniform. And therefore, you want to play like the captain. Right? That's part of who we are. That's participation in covenant. That's who I am in Christ. However, it does not mean that choosing life won't cost you something. Because let me show you this. Every choice you made in life cost you something. Okay? It cost you the choice you could have made that you didn't. For everyone that's in this room that is married, you made a choice and you married the person that you married. Now we might, we kind of have a rom-com mentality because we are influenced in the Western world by entertainment, which I'm not cutting down, but we, we do. And because of our rom-com mentality, we go, there's one person on the planet that's for me. And out of 7 billion people spread across an entire globe, they live down the street from me. It was so God. That's what we say, right? It was so God. There's just no other way I'd have found them without the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sorry if you believe that. I, I don't. I, I don't mean that God doesn't put people into your life. I don't believe, mean that God doesn't have you cross paths with people and influence their lives. But I also think there was probably somebody else you could have married. You probably could have been relatively happy. You might have even, even been ecstatically happy. I, I'm, 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 not, I'm just being practical, right? We're not practical enough. We, everything we're all lofty up in the spirit clouds. Just bring it back down to reality for a second. Because here's my point. You made a choice. And here's what you got is what you got. And what you lost is what you didn't choose. And if you're okay with that, then you can be happy. Right? If you're not okay with that, you're miserable. <laughs> yeah. My point is every choice you've ever made in your life did cost you something. It just wasn't money. We always think wallets. No, it was what you could have been. You can't go left and right. You have to choose. But when you go right, you cannot live what was on the left road. Okay? You, you can't have it. You don't get to go right and then through virtual reality live left. I, I, I'm, I'm, now I'm, try, I'm now bringing it into the realm of the Spirit. When you choose to obey the voice of God, you gave up whatever would have happened had you not heard the voice of God. When you chose Christ, you gave up what you would have been had you not chosen Christ. Right? And you don't live both of those lives. You live the life of having chosen who He is. And so choice is absolutely a part of our lives whether we like it or not. It just is. And I use the, the practical example of your spouse or your life choice or your job or your career, how you spend your money or the color of house you live in, the car you bought. that You could have bought the other one, but you bought this one. And choices cost you the converse, the opposite. Whatever it was you didn't choose, it's gone. So don't ever believe that following Christ costs you nothing. 
Because it costs you not following Christ. And that's just the biggie. But every choice inside of following Christ costs you everything else. So there is a cost to this. And the cost, in a very beautiful way, becomes every single thing that you could have been, and therefore in a God that has no clock and no calendar, the choice of choosing Him and following Him becomes every single thing you think you are. That's how much it costs to follow Jesus. Which is why Jesus, throughout His ministry, would say to people, sell everything you got, come follow me. And you go, well, does that mean Jesus doesn't want us to have stuff? Don't miss it. It means that whatever you've got, that's what it costs to follow Jesus. Whatever you are, that's what it costs to follow Jesus. We go, how much, is, how much does it take to follow Him? How much you got? But how much you got? Well, I got this much. Perfect. That's what it costs. Well, I got this much. Perfect. That's what it costs doesn't belong to you anymore all of it how much of it all of it if you choose life you don't get to choose death you choose him you don't choose anything else all of it let me give you let me give you a spiritual one that we're carrying because we were taught to carry it and we need to let go and i think this is the one this is the one that if you can let it go you can finally live because you prayed the sinner's prayer and discovered the life of God, it's because you've been carrying a piece of baggage with you for so long. You didn't realize that if you choose life, you can't choose this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says this. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as He are, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, or the Greek word fear involves punishment. And he who fears has not been made perfect in love. How many of you believe God loves you? This is not a trick question. How many of you believe God loves you? How many believe God perfectly loves you? Then what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Because perfect love casts out fear. So you either believe you're perfectly loved and there's no fear or there is fear and you're lying to yourself about what it means to be perfectly loved. Or possibly, possibly, the thing you've refused to lay down is the fear you have, the fear that involves punishment. And so many of us came to Jesus so we wouldn't go to hell. That's why we got saved. Didn't get saved for the life of God. Didn't get saved for peace that passes all understanding. Didn't get saved for joy unspeakable and full of glory. Didn't get saved so we could see what God looked like. Got saved so we wouldn't go to hell. Because the gospel we heard was, you're guilty. You're going to burn in the devil's hell. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, it might happen tonight if you go out here and get hit by a car. 
That's what we did. That's what we did with the gospel. We always had people dying in the next five minutes. And if you die in the next five minutes, you're going to spend eternity without God. Are you ready to come up here and get saved? And listen, a lot of us came to Jesus because we went, this is the, the whole reason I prayed the sinner's prayer. First time I prayed the sinner's prayer, the entire reason. It's even what I told God when I got down on my little six-year-old knees on the altar. Six years old. How much sin had I accumulated? Think about it. No, seriously, think about it. But I had just been told, you deserve to die. You deserve to die. I wouldn't tell a six-year-old that. You deserve to die, and if you die, and you haven't prayed this prayer, you're going to burn in hell. And you know how long you're going to burn in hell? Forever. I couldn't, forever? I mean, when you're a kid, you know how long it is till next week? You remember that when you were a kid? It's like mom and dad go, next week we'll go. And you go, oh gosh, next week. I'll be dead. <laughs> and my dad would go, you're darn right you will be if you don't watch your mouth. That was, coming, that was my dad. <laughs> yeah, you will be. You'll be dead. And so I knelt down and I prayed the prayer because I didn't want to go to hell. Now, I've been born again since that. Many times. I've had revelations of God's love since then. I don't live for Jesus now because I'm afraid of going to hell. I do live for Jesus now because I've seen the hell I can create without him. I'm not happy about that. That's a choice you make. And so the hell that follows you is the hell that accompanies the decision you make against the love of God. I've chose the love of God. But I'm at the place now that if I found out there was no hell... I wouldn't change anything about following Jesus. I've met the master. Revolutionized my soul, my life, my mind, my heart, my marriage, my relationships. And I'm I'm stunned by how many of us only are moving forward in the things of God out of fear of punishment. If you truly want to live the life of God, you've got to lose the fear of punishment. You say, Pastor, what about the Bible that says God chastises those that he loves? He does. Chastisement is not the Greek word for punishment that you and I use. It is not the word in which God beats you half to death because you've been doing things wrong. It's the God that prunes you and disciplines you so that you can be the best version that you were born to be. Why is it that we accept this from coaches, but we reject this from God? If a coach disciplines his team, he's simply preparing them so they'll win next weekend. We hire that guy. That's exactly what chastisement is from God, the discipline that puts us in the position that we need to be. And the father continues to do it because you're his kid. You see, I don't discipline your kid. Your kid can be an absolute nightmare, demon-spawn child. I'm not going to discipline them. It's not my job to discipline them. But I'm going to discipline mine. That's how I raised them. Now, by discipline them, I didn't beat them to death. But we had to prune the tree once in a while, right? You, you, had, you had to show the parameters of what it meant to carry your family's name. You had to show what it looked like 
to be a part of the family of your father and your mother, to respect that. That's why, that's why even in Colossians, he goes, children, obey your parents in all things. It's well-pleasing unto the Lord. Why? Because you carry the name of the people that are above you. And as you carry it, you reflect on them. That's us as we live for God. And therefore, our father chastises those that he loves because he loves them. Because they're his kids. So if you go, I don't believe God ever chastised. It's probably because you're, you don't feel like you're his kid. If you knew you were his kid, you'd know he shows up and says, that doesn't look like what you are. That's not you. Now, I love you, but that's hurt that just did that. That's wounded that just did that. I want to heal that in you. It's not going to feel good. Because sometimes when you get the medicine, it hurts. Again, that's not slapping you for sin. That's the father stepping in and going, this don't look like you. This isn't who you are. I want to encourage you tonight. Choose life how? Let go of the fear of punishment. As he is, so are you in this world. You have no fear when you stand in judgment. You should be excited. You should be excited about the fact that someday you are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know why you should be excited? Because you have no fear that he's going to punish you. And so you stand in front of the judge and whatever sentence he gives goes through Jesus. And then that Christ that's in you steps into whatever it is in you that needs to burn up. And it burns up in you with Christ right there. That's the Father distant to those that he loves. If you'll drop the baggage of fear, you could finally live. Now, I know you said the sinner's prayer. But if you don't if you haven't experienced the life of God, here's my challenge to you tonight. Just inventory your life on the, position, on the places in which you fear. You fear the punishment of God. You fear the abandonment of God. You fear the separation of God. You fear isolation from God. None of those things are your father. Because you're a better parent than that. You wouldn't do that to your kids. What about our father? And so as our father chases us down with his love, drop the baggage of fear of punishment. Receive the love of the father. God is love. All the other stuff, God is not. But God is love doesn't mean God doesn't have all of those other features. It means God is love. And out of that love, choose his life. Choose his life. Um, choosing life is not a matter of... I've talked to a lot of grace people, preached in a lot of grace circles, and I've found that predominantly grace people sort of fall into two camps. There's the person who got the theology of grace, and all it did was make them a grace Pharisee. They know all the verses, but they know what's wrong with everybody else. And they still pretty much do everything they did before grace, but they're just smarter than everybody else. And so they're always spot and mixture. They're always pointing out what's wrong with the church down the street. Um, and it's pharisaical. And another category of grace people get grace and they're like a dog let off the chain. And they go sin like crazy. And I mean they do everything they can get their little hands on. If they couldn't do it under religion, they're going to give it two worlds under grace. They're going to give it a shot. Now, there's a third category, of course. There's four categories, five categories. There's a lot of ways we do this. But I'm, I'm talking about how we 
what's keeping us from life even though we know God's grace? We, went, we, we, we didn't step into the grace of God so that we can have a theological experience with God that is superior to the people around us. We stepped into the grace of God so that we could step into the life of God. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to be right. We can stop being the sheriffs of the church to figure out who's in mixture and who's not, what church is good, what church is bad, what preacher you should listen to, what preacher you shouldn't, what books approved on the grace list, what books not approved on the grace list, who we should follow. We can dispense of that because the moment we realize that we are both sinner and saint, we can get off of this idea that if anybody uses lingo and language that doesn't line up with our grace, we have to kick them out. It's unbecoming of Christ. It doesn't look like Jesus. It ought not look like us. This is just simple grace instruction. Sometimes we need some of this. The other part is we get off the chain, we go do all the stuff that we did, couldn't do under religion. Most of the time I say, give it a shot for a little while. Get ready for the hell that's about to come your way. But know that God loves you and you're not condemned. I hope you'll come back to where the food is. All right? And what we find is that a lot of people were never really infatuated with the resurrected Jesus. They were just scared they were going to hell. And the minute you take that away from them, they go sin like crazy. And what we'll do is we'll go back to preaching the law because we're scared that they won't ever come back to church if we don't make them feel guilty. And all we really do is give up on grace five minutes into the experience. Some people aren't going to come back. They're gone. And a lot of them are gone because... Once they had the restraints removed that were keeping them living for God, they didn't have life in them. They only had death. And death draws death. Walk around with a corpse attached to you and you will die. That's a fact. Death breeds death. And so what happens is once we get released from the theology of it and we go out and sin like crazy, you'll realize that a lot of people didn't have an experience with Christ. So what do we do? We continue to preach Jesus. We are, not, we are not intellectually saved. We are saved by the experience of knowing Him and believing Him. It isn't how high you can jump, how low you can reach. But the Word is in our mouth. Confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart God has raised Him from the dead. Choose life today. I've thrown a lot of information at you for Saturday night. That's a tough one. We've had a good run, though. i got one more shot at you tomorrow. All right. One more chance. Let me pray. All right? I never stop without praying. I, I just believe if you're going to put the seed in the ground, it's okay to sprinkle a little water on it. All right? I can't make this thing grow, but I know the one, the one that can. So, as you, there's no formula to the prayer. Father, heal us so we can help heal others. Sends a sickness issue. I know that I'm saved by grace. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I also realize that I got some stuff. And I need healed. Keep going to work on me. Father, I choose life tonight. In choosing life, I've got to let go of some stuff. Because choices come with what we give up. What I believe, if we'll give up the fear of punishment, we can know perfect love. Father, in every heart in this room tonight, if they see anything in which they fear punishment, they see anything in which they fear, may they learn to lay it down. It doesn't, maybe, maybe it doesn't happen tonight, but Father, maybe it begins happening tonight. Maybe they lay it down in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.